This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hello, simple passive cash flow listeners. Today we are going to be doing a coaching call with Ahmed, who's going to show us all about him building his portfolio, how he's been buying some rentals with some buddies of his, and where he is going financially as he is right on the verge of financial independence. But uh, thanks for joining us, Ahmed. Why don't you give us a quick context on yourself? Thank you, Lane, for having me. It's a dream come true. I've been uh, watching your podcast for a number of years now. My story is, I think it's just a typical American story. I came here to go to school, an immigrant, now taking the next step of financially independent. The funny thing is that I came here in 89, graduated in 94 with accounting and moved away from accounting from working in that industry for a year and a half. And ever since I'm an IT professional, met my wife in Mankato, where I went to school. We just celebrated our 28 years of, uh, of partnership. Being a father of uh, uh, twin daughters, I spent my entire time in Minnesota. I think as the saying goes, wherever the immigrant lands, they, they tend to stick around. So the story that I'd like to tell is this two first and foremost, how I have embraced frugality, uh, personal responsibilities in finance, as well as how I see real estate as an important vehicle to get to the next level. Yeah, I definitely got a, a lot of first generation wealth people li listening to the podcast. When a first generation is second generation, you're born with it. But first generation doesn't necessarily mean immigrant, but it's just the first generation where your net worth is over a million dollars, I'm thinking. A lot of people, they, they get college degrees, but they never hit that threshold. But, but yeah, a lot very financially minded, frugal folks, they pay for value. So you're fitting right that mode. When, when did we first connect? A couple of years ago or something like that? I've done that. So I first bought my first rental property with a partner in 2015. And I started listening to Simple Passive Cashflow about 2017 or so. And the reason you hit a chord with me is that because I had some ideas, did not know the concepts of fires and all of these things behind me. But at the same time, though, just being a numbers guy, it never attached to me till you start speaking about passive income. What does that mean? It's not necessarily that I, I call self-retirement too, that, you know what, just remove the dependency on paychecks. But at the same time, though, it just does not happen. You have to work for it. And that's something that I took up from your podcast and from, from your teachings. Cool. So just to give people a quick rundown of the, the stats, you make around 120 grand a year at your day job, which is pretty typical of our listener base, mostly six figures and above. What's the accounting things? What's, that's the side hustle that I'm doing right now, late, and um, not to digress, but graduating accounting, moved away. My day job is IT. I'm a software quality assurance manager for a consulting company. I have had many different types of roles in IT. I've implemented large scale systems, mostly CRMs and financials. And now I quote unquote, find bugs for a living. But accounting is when I started investing in real estate, one thing that I bring to my partnership is that, say for example, the bookkeeping, the accounting, keeping the numbers, dealing with the CPAs, stay ahead of the, the tax laws. And then I started doing it a little bit commercially too, because I was asked, you know, so my business partner, who's a, one of my business partners, he's a broker, and he desperately needed some help with his books. So now I do side hustles of some real estate bookkeeping, not to uh, limit myself, but not to stress myself also. Yeah. Of course you do a side hustle. That's, I mean, it's either that or uh, what, six grand a year, buy a couple more rentals at 3,000 a piece. I'm sure you use that too. The nice thing about the side hustle is 
you can stuff different deductions or expenses through there. What kind of things do you buy and shelter under that thing? Mostly office expenses right now. So remember the chair that I'm sitting on needs to be replaced. Mostly the office expenses. I actually started out with, say for example, some of those software programs that I thought that it's going to help me grow. And that's where I started. And then I thought that, you know what? And then the time that I spend for my partnerships too, because we pay for two of my partnerships, we self-manage and we pay our partners to manage our properties. And that the uh, same thing goes for me. I'm spending an inordinate amount of time keeping the books, making sure that our financials are up to date and our partners have at the true 360 degree view of it. So I charge back to the partnership. But the question that you're asking me is that what are the, some of the benefits? Right now, mostly I would call it like the, the soft expenses, which is in office supplies, software, conferences, by the way. I just attended our real estate conferences. I'm charging that on my side hustle. We got to get that. This $6,000 a year down to zero. That's the goal. <laughs> we work with hardworking professionals looking to opt out of investments for the clueless. I mean, mainstream investing. We work with people we have a direct relationship while enjoying higher returns and a quicker path to financial freedom. I personally move my endorsement from turnkey rentals to syndications as my net worth has grown. However, the downside of many of these deals is that you need at least $50,000 to invest and the frequency of deals that meet my criteria is sporadic. Check out my article at simplepassivecashflow.com slash OFUND and learn how I always have cash on hand by using the American Home Preservation Fund as part of this one-two punch to be ready for a great deal while still making a double-digit return. I have been investing in AHP since 2016. AHP is a crowdfunding solution to the mortgage crisis in America, where collectively the fund and investors like you pull their money together and get great bulk discounts on distressed mortgages. It's a business model that I think gets stronger should a bump in the economy come, because this is where there will be even more distressed inventory for AHP to purchase. The American Home Preservation Fund aims to keep people in their homes so you can make a 10% return while making a positive social impact. Invest in as little as $100 by going to ahpservicing.com investors. And if you want the free Burn Zone book and learn about George Newberry's story, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. I like to buy stuff. Well, that's a liability. So the savings rate of 15%, I know where this is coming from because you're coming, you're like a refugee from the personal finance blog sphere. They fixate on this 15%, which to me means nothing because I got guys making 600 grand a year, sure. a million dollars a year. A percentage isn't that big. Tell me, how much money are you able to save either in stocks, mutual funds, real estate, anything every year? Like what's your net is the question. You if make I about 130 grand, you spend some money on vacations, some iPhones and some fun stuff. And then your daily expenses, how much do you have on a monthly basis or annual basis, would you figure? If I look at the watermark, whether it changes or not. So say, for example, that cash number that I'm showing you about 38,000, whether it's staying static because you're quote unquote, the net savings things, what you're talking about is that maybe our savings doesn't have to go into the cash. It always should go back into investments. So yeah, include I, that, include that. I got guys still putting money in the 401k. I say, keep that, even though I say, don't do that, but just want to know what this is a question. Oh, what's your velocity currently, right? If, are you able to save 30 grand a year? Are you able to save a hundred grand a year? I definitely can say that I'm saving between 25 to $30,000 a year. Okay. Okay. So where your income level is, I would have expected it to be a little bit higher. higher. And I know you're cheap. 
I just know <laughs> that about you. you know, yeah, most yeah. of the guys in my group are like at least 30 grand a year. And yeah. that includes some guys making under 80, 90,000 a year. Granted, they're single dudes, but you got a family. Like, but I would say people in your kind of, you know, you're more established. You're not making big purchases. They're around 50 grand a year. You don't have to answer it now, but maybe think there's something that you're spending your money on every year. Maybe private school education or I don't know. There's something going on, man. There's a hole in your pocket where a 10, 10 or 20 grand is going. Maybe your spouse is running off to Norch. I mean, to send on the Macy's, but think, so jot it, that one down. Or I if anything that. comes to mind. And Lane, it's a happy medium. If you remember coming from the Dave Ramsey's uh, piece of the world, which I'm going to cover a little bit later on too. I think that's a phenomenal kind of dimension that I had embraced. But being a free spirit and a nerd, obviously you can see, everybody can see that being the nerd of the family and then the free spirit of an artist's wife. I think that's a happy medium. You're right though. My wife is, it's weird. She is financial frugal, what you call that wild spirit. So you're right. Just being a, the families, we could do a lot better with the savings rate, but it's one of the inspiration that came from her is that, you know what, we can draw a happy medium. We don't go overboard on anything, but quote unquote. Let's not go super cheap either, but it's easy to say that, but that's yeah, my, my philosophy on the whole quality of life and spending is get a few years, five, four to six years of years where you're saving 30 to 50 grand in there. But once you peak over that 50 grand, you have the ability to free spirit at that point and buy some nice stuff. And that's what I'm cool with it at then, but only if the the investments, the cash flow from the investments is paying for crap like that. I feel like where you're at, maybe we'll get going to that, but maybe you might have to tighten the belt for a couple of years, get bumped that up, but then reap the rewards later. But while you're mentioning your spouse, what do they think of the whole, you've got a, a portfolio of over a dozen units. What did they think of that stuff? What's their overall? One of the conscious things that I have tried to do, because this is real estate being the saving grace for many families, but at the same time, the most litigious industry. So I consciously created a firewall for my families not to be exposed to the real estate that much. In fact, so remember, I'm, I'm talking about creating state trust stakes and what have you, trying to create those firewalls as much and not to have those decision makings. The spouses might hear this complaint that, yeah, you guys are doing all of these things, but anytime things go south, we have to hear that. And that's one of the complaints that my wife had too, that when things start going sour, then you start coming and, and the venting, they, my wife did not like the venting part. So I consciously kept her away from this. We are all aligned on the end goals, but how we get there, she left it on me. Does that make sense? I get it. Yeah. Just do what I do and never say any of the bad stuff that happens. <laughs> Bring it upon yourself. That, say that jokingly. Maybe the problem is if they don't see you putting in, you're currently putting in 30 grand a year, buying one unit a year. But what if they see you buying one and a half units or two units every year, that's even an extra $30,000 to get you up to 50, 60,000 a year. What does that do to your bottom line that bumps your cash flow up? $5,000, $6,000 a year, right? Do you think that they're making that equation or that they're not. Yeah, they're not. You're right. So keeping them encapsulated is the problem. And, and the biggest thing that I started doing the financial peace university a while back, and then I kind of moved away from it is because the conversation that should happen with it, with at least with your spouse. 
especially having a stay-at-home spouse that I have uh, because we had to because of our daughter's twins. We didn't have any support structures around us. So my wife actually had to stay at home to raise our daughters. So that, but having that conversation, I think that tremendously helped once we got into a philosophy that, you know what, yeah, this is what we're going to do, try to do a data verse, try to stay within our means, follow the envelope system and what have you. Yeah. You're driving the ship, but you got her in the bottom, like shoving coal into the furnace, just doing oh. stuff. He doesn't know. What does she right. care if you save an extra 15, 20 grand a year to buy a rental? I don't see it, but that doesn't mean that they need to be involved. I just see it different. I see so many different arrangements of how people do things, but I don't know if you want a different effect, right? You want to save a little bit more money to buy more rentals. You definitely have to do a different action. If not, you're insane says Einstein. Lane, right? One yeah. thing that I want to bring your attention to is that based on the circle that you you associate with, that distribution number that I'm showing, 8,400, that's the first time I've taken a distribution this year. And my goal is, and I'll cover that, that's my financial goal is that I want to see you know, consistent distribution out of all of my partnership on all of my assets. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's your problem. You segregate all this stuff and this distribution is where did you pull this 8,400 bucks? It's just what you yeah. felt comfortable with. No, it should be whatever that thing makes or doesn't make. That's what comes into your personal account every month. If you're having this kind of a problem, right? Your spouse doesn't care, then do it however you want. But another framework I would recommend for you, and we're not going to get too much into this, but I would pick up the book profit first uh, by Mike McCats. He has this framework about, he has got these charts on here let me copy this over and i'll put it into your thing right here did you so, have him on his on your podcast yeah i think i did but i just put it into the chart here so it says okay based on a certain revenue range let's just stick you in this sure. column sure. a yeah. this is how much you should be spending on profit owners pay taxes operations what is your top line income about Let's just say, let's backwards engineer it. So let's, let's say you're making a hundred grand, right? You just save 15% for taxes, but the real estate's different. You don't pay taxes, but they always say do that first. But the whole premise is like the profit and owners pay. You need to be paying yourself these amounts and not just some random, oh, I felt like paying myself 8,400. Look, honey, we made 8,400. This is a way of forcing you to take some profits off the table because that's the saddest thing in life. These entrepreneurs, they build these businesses and put it, always put it back into research and development and operating expenses or marketing stuff, never take it out. And their family just gets disenchanted by this whole thing because this is black pit. So just take a look at these percentages and it's not gospel, but try and understand why the percentages are working that way. So yeah. owners pay, that might be you putting into a bank account and eventually taking it out as 8,400 or whatever at the end of the year. But profit is something consistent. Profit is something that they can see in their bank account and get on the team. Who cares if you get another rental is what they say. Who cares? What's in it for me? You get 5%, right? Or imagine if you gave your kids one-tenth of this, right? Now everybody's on the team. Now I'm not a big fan of this, everybody screaming up and singing Kumbaya, but this might work for you guys. So just something to think about. But it might be another thing too, right? Like I know you went to Dave Ramsey, he brainwashed you guys with the whole debt stuff. How's that going? You got a lot of debt on these properties. As you can see, I, I documented that I actually moved away from his teaching is that because buying cash for property simply does not work. And so if, without debt, and say for example, 
leverage works. And I think his teachings where I deferred is that, quote unquote, let set aside Dave Ramsey's or Susie Orman's of the world. At the end of the day, don't do stupid things. I think that's what they teach. But at the same time, in terms of growing wealth, though, I feel like that first teach yourself how to be responsible and then take on leverage a debt that makes sense. Don't buy things that doesn't generate any income or depreciate. And I moved away from his teaching, but I still follow some of the principles. We still do all the envelope systems, try to stay within the budget. I try to make my disposal income as low as possible. And that's something though, I know you have a strong feelings about it. And I'm seeing the other way around too, Lane, just to digress, how moving money away from financial markets to other avenues, real estate is definitely one. So I have seen my net worth switching from financial markets to real estate. I think I have for the first time, I think this year, I went below 50% of my net worth. That's more into real estate than financial markets. Yeah. And that was something else I caught on here. You got a lot of money in the 401k and on these paper (laughs) assets. That's the trend, right? Like you're moving the needle more to real assets, which just happens over time. It took me a long time too, but that's natural. But what like your spouse, it seems like they're not entirely on board, but how did that whole discussion about debt? come around? That uh, concept, she was absolutely on board with me. In fact, my spouse was, wasn't very happy when I put a primary house for a mortgage. So I had a line of credit, a HELOC that I used as a, to finance some of my investments. And then I thought that, you know what, why not just lock the rate because the rates are so low now, lock the rate, take a lower rate and then, you know, but still aggressively paid it off. So she wasn't at all happy about that. The debt average lifestyle, she enjoys it. She doesn't mind it at all because it does provide that financial peace. Okay, Uh, cool. uh, And as I said, I have uh, consciously encapsulated her because if you see the numbers uh, that you're showing, Lane, for the real estate, over $4 million of real estate under ownership, the number that I'm not showing is the debt. It's about three plus millions that we have. I think 2.8 is probably what the debt that we have. So uh, as I am, as as an investor, I'm, I'm personally guaranteeing that loan, by the way. But we know that it's it's coming against the, the real estate. So that's one of the other reasons too, that I am not preaching that in order for you, uh, that you should not take on debts if you don't have to. I still say that, but I do see that debt could be utilized judiciously as long as you build that skill. I agree. I agree. I get frustrated sometimes like that Dave Ramsey, they affiliate really closely with the whole Jesus Christ and Bible stuff. Yeah. So they don't follow it themselves. I, I, I have to tell you that Lane, at the end of the day, you have, you own properties in the Southern part of the the state a lot better than I do, but I live in the twin cities of Minnesota. You cannot buy a property cash. That's just simply just not happen. It does not happen. And you have to be realistic about it. I think one of the biggest newer points is that these days is inflation is going to be coming, not like in the next few years, but it's coming. Not mm-hmm. a doubt to pay off for a little stimulus. This is the way to sort of lock in this great debt and just wait this out because in the end, savers are going to be the people who get killed, people who put money under their bed or not doing anything with it right now and playing the waiting game. They're the ones who are going to be losing. But yeah, you got this nice little portfolio up here. I have the spreadsheet. And if you guys check these out on the YouTube channel, it's you kids can actually see the numbers. But Talk us through how you started acquiring these properties up in Minnesota, North Carolina. Because I think when we first chatted, your heart set on buying properties near your local area. But how did this all come about? Help the new guy getting started. Take us back to 2015, 16, when you picked up these first few. 
That's perfect. I am the perfect story for, you know, why people should invest into real estate, because I am that person in 2011 at the heart of the downturn. We have sold our property for a loss because I did not want to be a landlord from that person to in 2015, buying my first rental property. And the reason I made that switch is because first and foremost, Lane, I think I believe in not believe people blindly build a relationship. Relationship has its ups and downs. So my business partner at that, from, from that point onwards, my realtor who had helped us at the property that we live in right now, is a rambler that we rehabbed and, and we moved here because of the school district. And then from that point onwards, he has almost become like a family members, but at the same time, he helped me acquire a property. We own it together for, that was the first property I bought. And that's the message that I want to get across. That what all of us, we think that if you don't think that you have a shortcoming, you are misjudging yourselves. But at the same time, I, I also feel like that we always undersell ourselves in terms of our skills. But I know what I'm capable of, what my strengths are. So I have started acquiring relationship through partnership. So this entire portfolio that you're seeing, it's built out of three partnerships. The first one is a real estate broker that I had known for many years. He acquires the properties. She self-manages the properties and, and the partnership pays for that. And then I bring in uh, different sets of skills. I keep the numbers. And then with this partnership, though, we are doing something very interesting. Lane. Being a realtor, as most of the time, the realtor's mindset is that keep the property in exit shape. So we have spent a lot of uh, money, as you said, put the money back into the, the business to kept access. All of our properties have your, all of those things are done. So it's almost like all is exit ready. So the trend line for me is that 2015, one property is 2016 two, but on average, I've been acquiring two properties every single year. Even during the COVID, I think we have three acquisitions this year. So on this first partnership, maybe walk us through each partnership. Do you guys put up the money separately? Who does the sweat equity? And then how do, how do you guys split the payouts? Is it like half, half, or how, does, how do you work these deals? So what had happened is that for the partnership based in Minnesota, and then I will also answer the question that why did I head of it spread out? But for the partnership in Minnesota, what, what happens is that, yeah, it's 50-50 partnership, but I would say higher percentage of investment came from myself and my partner. Yeah, he does the sweat equity. And what happens is that we calculate a loan payback to me. We decide what's a fair loan payback to me, and we are carrying that, and then we are working towards that. So essentially what happens is that even if we end up selling a property, which we have done, and we are converting from single families to we are kind of moving into townhome for us less maintenance, but that's a different story. And we are also converting our commercial loans to 30-year papers too. That's another story. But with this partnership, the way we build this up is that majority of the investment is coming from myself. My partner also put up cash wherever he needed to. In fact, he floats all of our invoices for CapEx. So what we end up doing is that we look at the cash contributions of, of each property. And then if you're selling it first, what we do, uh, we take out is that let's pay back that capital of each partners. And then we uh, split the uh, appreciation. Okay. And then, so who's putting in the debt? So like on the second property, actually, let me first mention this. I like what you did on the first one. Yeah. Like you just bought it yourself because you don't know what you don't know. So before you start jumping to bed with people, you don't know, or you sort of know, it's good to just do it at yourself. So you know that, oh, the CapEx floating, that's a pain in the butt or not a big deal. And you know how much it's worth. So I think that was a good move on your part, but yeah. So you, the first go around in, in the, the partnership with the realtor who, who supposedly, I think he does more of the sweat equity operation and especially on the deal finding side Correct. on the large syndication deals, the way we break it down is like 
one third is who brought the money, one third is who found the deal, one third is operation. And there's all these small intangibles, like on this deal, whose debt, this is a Fannie Mae Freddie Mac loan and whose debt and name is it? It's actually, uh, all of these are LC backed loans. So both the partners are uh, liable for the loans. Okay. Why did you not go with putting all the loans in your name and getting a little bit better interest rate as a Fannie Mae Freddie Mac? What was the We had to process? do that late when we first started because we did not have this the story of LCC not having an income. We had to do that. I think out of this portfolio, there are two loans that are on personal names. We actually have, have now started doing that, what you just said, which is that, you know, putting the properties, taking out of the commercial loans for the 20-year uh, amortization, getting out of that and putting it into the cheaper money. We started doing that. That's what I would do and just compensate yourself a little bit. That, that right. might be like worth five or 10% of the general partnership here. We are seeing that you are hundred percent. So out of this entire portfolio, especially the ones in Minnesota, I think there are two properties still under the commercial loan. Interest rate is decent, but as you said, with the 20 year M, we are just killing yourself. Yeah. But you know, what really sucks about that commercial loan. What's the term length? What's the term on the loan? Five years? Every five years, yeah. Yeah, There's dude, that sucks. Get out of that. That's a dangerous loan. Go no less than seven years. Yeah, we are. You are right, though. We are right on the cusp of twos. That's going to probably readjust. But we will, as I said, this year, we are doing two things, uh, at least on the properties in Minnesota. We are getting away from single families. We are looking at a little bit higher value-added townhomes where the rents are actually higher, Lane. So we are converting our single families to townhomes. And the second part, even with HOA, by the way, with the HOA and the second part is that we are taking the 20 year notes to a 30 year note. Okay. I, I would say get those commercial notes down to get the term lengths up. Just do Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac and put it in one of your guys' names and okay. work it out. Maybe you get one, maybe he gets one, you split it that way. So you're not splitting hairs and 55% here, 45% to that guy. Right. Yeah, get all those commercial loans. And whatever you don't talk to lending brokers, those guys are stupid. They're going to want you to do an all-in-one loan or like cross-collateralize and put multiple of these in one. Don't do that. That's what they love that because it's a large loan. They can pick up their origination fees. But the problem with that is if you want to get rid of one of the properties, you can't. You, you blow up the whole loan. So yeah, lending brokers drive me crazy. They're trolling all over the place in Facebook groups and whatnot. Don't mind. I want to take uh, this chance to answer one of your questions that you had asked me early, which is that why move away from the local market to outside markets lane? So for me, the biggest driving force was entry points. What I was noticing is that how much more can my money buy? And that's what I was seeing, especially with small multiplexes. I remember I went through the life cycles of, I think you probably have talked about at nausea about the real estate investors starting out with single families portfolios and then get into small multiplexes and then mid-sized uh, multiplexes and then obviously larger multiplexes. So I'm on the small multiplexes right now, multifamilies. And what I saw is that my money was not buying enough in, in the Twin Cities market. So that's why I started branching out. Yeah. So... I would probably not recommend doing what you're doing. I think you're okay because you know how to do this, but most people do not have the ability to do what you're doing. Correct. I would not recommend if you're listening, doing this because now when you're going over five units, you're getting crappy commercial loans. You're not getting Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, non-recourse debt, which you have to go to million dollar loan sizes or more. You're not getting the economies of scales that you are with a hundred unit where you get a property manager who sits at your building and a guy driving around in a golf cart, fixing out work orders. All this stuff is still third-party, really super expensive repairs. 
and then the biggest issue is now you're going to different places you got different partners and you just a russian roulette in a way which of those guys are going to screw you over this stuff works when it works but i would say whatever you do you either got to stay small with the four units and under or just go lp syndication and go big but you're obviously picking this road you're, you're debunking my which i think it's fine you're an outlier again if you guys want to read more into this go to simplepassivecashflow.com syndication which is the syndication guide and it's a huge article go command f or whatever and search for mom and paul investor and there's a myriad of reasons why you don't want to do what ahmed is doing right here but uh, but yeah what's next where are you going are you gonna keep doing this or is, um, is so this worth it like the reason I need to see this thing through a little bit longer is this model, because by the way, I'm also investing into syndication. I was just going to amplify what Dane, you said, the learning curve to get this thing to manage and then develop these partnerships across state lines. It's not for everyone. In fact, 90% of the investors probably should not be doing that. It's only because I think either you or somebody else said that it's all about, even with syndication, it's all about relationship. You should know the syndicator that you're trusting with. And then most of the time, I think there are people re repeatedly invest with the same set of syndicators because they build uh, they build that relationship. One thing that I wanted to point out is that Lane, just to answer your questions is, I'm just using a very simple formula that each of my units needs to provide me at least a hundred dollars a month. So if my goal is to reach that $5,500, how do I get there fast? So now I'm super concentrating on the North Carolina partnership because we are buying smaller multifamilies. But you were right though, you pointed out a few things, which is that just by doing this kind of uh, small scale, we are never getting the economics of scale. I think that's so important. And that's one of the areas that I'm looking into that what are the things that we can do? At, at, at that small volume, we probably would never be able to do that, but it's, it's a bona fide point that you brought up that as a mom and pop investors, if we think small like this, we would never get the small economics of scale. Yeah, and then also, let me dig a little bit and get people this confuse people a little bit. So how did you find that North Carolina operator, the person to work with? What was your due diligence process and why did you work with them? Family members. So this is a partnership that I built in, into the triad areas. So it's been a family member who is a partner. And then he brought in two other people that I did not know a single thing about them. You're right. Yeah. yeah. It's again, it's a crapshoot, right? We, it's almost like a throwing a dirt. Obviously it worked out because now uh, second years of existence, we went from one to 10 units. And it's working out and uh, in terms of everything we match, but it was just pure luck though. You're hundred percent no, right. I think the way you did it is good. That's better mm -hmm. than going on bigger pockets or working with a fortune builder partner well, or education and another, an expert. Um, next question here. How did you guys structure it? Did you guys have some kind of partnership document written out, outline a few things that could go wrong and how you would remediate that? And is it within a LLC? What's, it's within LLC, it's an operating document, but I think what you pointed out is something that our SEC lawyer has been asking for as well. What is the succession plan? We don't have that and we need to work on that. No, it's fine. I think it's fine. Here's my thought process. Like you don't really need, even if you have really good documents, it doesn't matter if people aren't on the up and up. Yeah. You can, as long as the people are, they act in good faith and they're good business people, you don't really need any documents technically, in my opinion. But another reason why I don't like doing this stuff is I don't like working with people who have a net worth of under 2 million because what's these properties worth 40, 50, hundred grand. If a $10,000 repair goes around and somebody has a tough time, they can just steal 10 grand. Cause that's a lot of money to them. 
But if a guy is worth two million dollars net worth, they're not gonna screw people over ten grand. Not even a question. Yeah. 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 It would not be on my register. But I don't know. That may not be a good ask your partner how much your net worth is because you never know. But that's just a thought process I have. That's why I'll never do a private money lending to a house flipper who drives around a truck. Um, not saying that's bad, but hey, not with my money. Look, I'm going to be very discriminatory with my money and kind of create rules around certain things like that. It's my money. I'm the investor. I call the shots. But uh, okay, I think you, you have fun with this. And that's why I think keep doing it personally <laughs> for you. So you were able to scale up. I'm hoping to pick your brain on, on a few of the topics, Elaine. Sure, I never did what you did, right? Like I never went to the five to 50 unit. I saw the issues and complications, but I never went to the, the depth you did. I never really did. It was all intellectual and thought process for me. Oh, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to go to the bigger stuff. Right? No, but you were right though, because you constantly have talked about your turnkeys in, in Birmingham. And you said that one capex will wipe off all of the gains. I have seen that. And one of the things that I, I put down on my observations is that most of the real estate the investors do not understand that they are not making money. Yeah. And I'm with you on that one, that Lane, the biggest challenge for most of the real estate investors is that they are so much into the weeds because they have to be in the weeds because they are, you know, trying to self-serve the properties. The margin is not there. They did not buy the property smart. So I tell you, people should take a very long and hard. Real estate is, is a fantastic vehicle to, to, to get you to a promised land. If you do not pay attention, if you're not aware, it's very easy to get derailed. And this is where I open arms, welcome you to syndications because now the ups and downs in real estate and. And you're totally I mean, encapsulated. Yeah. Yeah. Can't tell you how many accredited investors who don't have a freaking clue. I never owned a rental ask, why did distributions get delayed? So we had a pandemic, bro. You know, people weren't moving out. You people can put weren't those moving disclaimers in. as much as you want to, but still people will have that certain expectations. Yeah. I don't know. Part of it is education. Part of it, people's true colors want to come out yeah. and we're a relationship business and that's how you swiftly get yourself removed from the investor list but you get it right i think that's why it's nice working with folks like yourself because you want a reasonable excuse or justification for things and everything is reasonable we're not making this stuff up and you understand it you understand yep. how at least and what was the bottom line every month that's what i look at what was the bottom line oh we only made fifteen thousand dollars this month normally we should be around 30 to 40. Okay. Bad month. Let's try the next month. And you as a rental property owner know that. Shoot. If the HVAC went out five grand, now I'm down $4,000 this month. I deal with numbers uh, later. What you're saying is music into my ears. It's exactly right that, you know, majority of the times I looked at the, the, the curve at the end of the five-year mark in my partnerships in Minneapolis, I, I looked at how much money we have made versus how much money we actually had to put back. It's not easy. So the question that I have for you was that Elaine, you are uh, probably, you made that journey. Remember now you have moved away from your full-time job, but do you have an accountability partner? I have used them in the past, but it's hard to find people who is willing to kind of jump on a call with you on a routine basis. The mere fact that you're asking this question is probably telling me that you're the, probably the one who gets ghosted by us accountability partner. <laughs> That's the <laughs> hardest thing. And I think that also we used to do this in the investor club where yeah. I would connect people with accountability mm -hmm. partners. I don't know if you remember this, but these guys, we do it in January and we'll probably do it again at this next mastermind coming up, the bubble one. We'll sign accountability partners for those who are willing. 
But then one mistake I saw was like, people are like, oh, we're going to, we're going to do a call every two weeks. Dude, man, that's just going to blow up in your face. That's not sustainable. Maybe make it on like once every quarter, every three months. <laughs> like that's just my recommendation from best practices. But I pay for a coach. They know really not too much about business. They're just an accountability partner. That's something I've heard from a lot of people in my spheres. Yeah, man, I just pay a few thousand dollars to have somebody call me out on my BS, right? When I'm just sitting here in my chair, <laughs> yeah. not really making any progress. I'm just talking about doing the things. And then the accountability partner, or not the partner, they're not a partner. They're accountability coach that you pay money to. They're the ones being like, hey, Ahmed, you've been doing the same thing for the last six times we talked. I try to talk to them every two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Try not make it too. I got one for my wife too. But I think her coach is taking for a ride. They're they're like doing a call every week. I'm like, I guess I got to pay for it. But the way I see it, it might, might be a waste of money. But I don't know. It's well worth it, I think. Sure. A few thousand dollars for a year for that type of stuff. I think that's nothing. I looked at your investments that you always talk about. That the investment that have before that allowed you actually to get to the next level. That how much you have spent on your education and mentorship. I think that's an eye opener for me. It's special. Yeah, the money, I think, if you just want accountability, just go get a coach. That's sure. cheap. That's like under five grand for the year. Okay. Um, but if you pay the money for the connections that you would not have otherwise. One of the common questions that you always ask on your podcast is that, you know what, that any guess is that where are they at in terms of how much passive income they are generating? So this B and C is together, Lane. I just wanted your thoughts. How do I make sure that uh, I can retire? I have a soft goal of uh, doing this at age 55, which is three and a half years from now on. How can I make sure that I'm on the solid path? My financial planners tell me that I am, but I just don't feel it. And the second part is that you are living that life now that you do not have a uh, W-2 jobs. What are some of the thoughts that you had? How to handle that? Yeah, that's, you got these nice spreadsheets, but the one thing that doesn't tell me is the bottom line. The right. goal is cash flow. How much are these things freaking making, man? Like you got I all this did. other stuff. But not I did the numbers. I have it. Right now, it's, it's at 3,500. 3,500. Yeah. And you've got about, when I calculated your equity based on your partnership share, you have yes. six, a little 610,000. So if you're telling me you make 3,500 a month, yeah. so let's just call it 40 grand a year, 40 grand divided by 605 equity is 6.6%, 6 .6%, bro. Yeah, yeah, it's not, not that great. I'm looking at this blockfi.com thing and you can put your money in stable coin and get 8%. That's just kicking your butt. Granted, you don't get the tax benefits, but you're spending a lot of time and energy on this stuff. And that's um, correct. That's exactly correct. You, you're not putting an amount on time and energy and then the depression that you go through. Yeah. And, but so here's, I think where you have to think, you have to like do the math, add that other extra line on your spreadsheet with the return on equity percentage and your equity and how much okay. you're making. And then also going back to your original your side gig, right? Like at the end of the day, you had to ask yourself, what is your highest and best use? Maybe it's, I don't know. I get the feeling that you're at a dead end job already. You're like, whatever. Yeah. But exactly. maybe you can expand this thing, right? Maybe you can 5X that in the next couple of years. Do your accounting side gig. And that's likely where your highest and best use instead of screwing around with these little North Carolina properties and just go passive. I think that's, I don't know your situation entirely, but I'm guessing that's probably the highest and best use for your time. 
just like a dentist or doctors just going back to work sorry buddy you may not like it but that's just it's tom brady just go spin the football that's all you're good at man just keep doing that while you still can yeah. uh you were echoing my one of my business partners comments the same conversation that i had with him yeah he actually said the same thing like what you have to look at what's the highest roi in terms of your time yeah and yeah. i know what which way this direction is going i would start to put these properties on Roofstock. If you want to, my guy, I can connect, give you a warm connection, but I would place them on Roofstock while they have tenants in place. So you don't ruin the income stream. And I would start the conversation with your partners on being like, all right, let's horse trade a little bit. Maybe you would like to own these properties outright. Perfect. You get to own them. And <laughs> this is where you, you can be strategic and be like, all right, maybe you can dump the capital gain on them. Where they own it and they just give you cash now i don't know if that's kosher tax wise but we've been doing a part uh, a little bit of that already because you know that the partnership in, in twin cities we have we used to have 10 units we are down to eight we're going to get down to seven the way we did it we each took one property remember it, it comes with all, all the other things accounting is most uh, the property distributions and what have you but yeah we are doing a little bit part of that lane and you said that conversation was only forced because my partner he was overstretched and he said that he wanted his uh, kind of portfolio to be a lot lower. So it's almost the same conversation gets had by multiple people. Yeah, most people Sorry. want these properties paid off and most people want properties that are, they can feel it, touch it in the local area. So I'm sure you can find another sucker to take these off your hands. Maybe bring them but, in as a partner first and then give them the taxable gain. But at the same time though, what you're saying is that you want to let the lot lens uh the goal should be is a lot more less hands-on and then look at more to the passive syndication opportunities right yeah and this is gonna take a long time right like i had 11 rental properties and i sold seven of them in 2018 two of them in 2019 and i got still two of these things that i've been trying to sell for over a year that's it just takes a while. Your destiny has shaped in your decisions but i think you've made the decision i don't know if you made the decision I know you definitely made the decision to sell some of these, but overall, I think you need to make that decision. Are you going to go all in on this accounting thing? Or you, maybe we'll get to this last question. Are you there? Are you at escape velocity? How can I tell that? I asked you your net worth, right? Yeah. I think you, you, we figured it was somewhere around 1.4, 1.5. Correct. Which shouldn't be the case. You should know that's the score. Okay. You should know what the score is at all times. I think the problem is you got all this like money that's like not doing anything right now it's in stocks checkbook ira all this type of stuff self-managed tax this is all green I, don't, I don't like these checkbook ira or self-directed roth iras at all you want the tax benefits today get it out of that stuff invest the cash especially if you're younger which you are i think that's it's classic limiting belief right oh i'm too <laughs> old that's, that's for old people what are you like 41 kidding me man <laughs> not old yeah i i think what is retirement age 65 or something it is i think only if you're older than 65 then the self-managed tax advantage accounts make sense roths and all that stuff or you make a whole boatload of money you don't know where to put it but every situation is different but yeah you got to pull the goldie man you got to get this stuff working either buy more rentals or syndications or this is the problem you're fighting with one arm tied behind your back. You got 500K of equity working, but you got another 500K just sitting here doing nothing. 
The analogy I like to use is you're trying to fight a war here. You got half of your soldiers back at the barracks smoking weed and, and taking naps. You got half of the million dollars fighting on the front lines in freaking Minnesota, North Carolina, Nebraska, doing kamikaze yeah. runs for you. You got probably a little bit more than half not doing jack, not doing anything. So I'm not saying that these guys need to go on the front lines, buying some properties and Winsome Salem, Jamestown, North Carolina, but get them, get them making something. Not saying you have to put it in a syndication, but like maybe, I don't know, throw them in HP or throw them in like infinite banking, get them going, get five or 10% out of this stuff. That's what's hurting you. But once you get, um, let's just say you only have half a million dollars in the game right now. And even at best half a million dollars at 10% cash flow, that's you know, 50 grand a year. That's nothing. Yeah. You got to get these guys in the game. So at 10%, you can be at a hundred grand a year. And at that point, you're at zero gravity. You've got that escape velocity and you're at critical mass. So you're there. I think you just have to move things around, but then it comes down to your goals. Like at your current spend level, is this what you want? That you, I think you narrowed my problem statement very well, because that's what it is that, that my current spend level, can I achieve what I'm saying that I should be achieving in 55? Yeah. And this is where your means might expand to, you have to go at this harder or at your current, are you going to be able to send your kids to college or is that a thing with you guys or do you have? It is a thing with us. We have what you call those applied 29 plans, but I stopped investing into it. Our goal is to make sure that they have enough money for the first two years. Yeah. Okay. Are you on track to hit those goals? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. If you're at your current spend level, you've got that passive passively, but you don't, you got to get the other stuff working a little bit, but you're there essentially. The reason I asked that question is to have, you have the first people listening, they may like, oh shoot, I don't have that money saved. <laughs> okay, buddy, you're going to have to go with some North Carolina or whatever. <laughs> Like I have to do more stuff, but it seems like you're there. If that's truly the case, of course you should probably sit and ponder how you're going to piece this together. But for you, a million dollars in passive stuff, making 10% and maybe it grows a little bit better than that. Yeah. You're there. You just have to I think your problem is you got to pull the goalie and, and get these guys working a little bit. Work harder, work harder. Yeah. 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 You said you got a 529. How much you got in that? It's part of that tax advantage. So I have about right now okay. 58 between two daughters yeah get rid of that stuff man that's 529s are like college scenes clamp pants for the clueless invest their cash you're better you can run it 100 percent, because you it, there's no guarantee that my daughters even though we want them to go to uh, colleges that they would do that yeah put it into infinite banking and invest it for them yeah that's i think a longer topic so i have to follow up uh, what you're teaching about infinite banking i have looked at the numbers so I need to look at that a little bit more closely. So, yeah, but it's, you pay a lot in fees in the beginning, but you got money not doing anything right here. This is not doing anything. And that's How the thing. How long does it take you to uh, break even in the infinite banking? Because what, when I calculated it, uh, I saw that the break even is about five years. Yeah, around there, right there. But like, it's for people in your shoes that are kind of him and hawing for a few years with over half a million dollars not doing anything. The inefficient liquidity people that you are, inefficient which you're right but yeah. i did some of the stuff that you have been uh, preaching on lane and, and thank you for opening my eyes because this is the first year i have taken that COVID distribution so started pulling money out of that i thought that was never untouchable or not 
but you, you're right. You just have to be uh, intentional about it. So did COVID distributions, moving money from 401k loans. Remember the Dave Ramsey principles, you never do that, but I've done that and it's working out fairly well for me. So those things I've opened up, you were able to help me open my eyes yeah. up. I'm just giving entertainment here. You got to take these ideas, but I, I guess my goal is to dispel all the dogma and what people normally do, because what people normally do gets you what they get, but to put you in a group of other people that are doing the same thing, that are taking their 401ks out, at least makes you make a logical decision without prejudices in there. Uh, let me ask you just in respect to your time, I, I wanted to ask this question that I did not document here, but I, I, I know the answer, but I'm hoping that just by you answering it, other people would learn which is that what do you recommend for how do you choose which syndication group you want to invest with? What are the things that you decide before you invest with the syndication group? I'm a little bit different. I can underwrite the deals so I can decode the code. So I just pull the rent rolls and P&Ls and I run it through my analyzer and I see what it would pencil out as. Uh, what I'm trying to look for is what kind of assumptions are these guys use? Are they using like uh, zero. 3%. What is the reversion cap rate? Is it the same as their insurance? Because that's I think that's irresponsible. What is their rent increase per year? Is it three percent? Like you said, that's way too high. Most newbie investors are looking at silly things like what is the the GPLP split or where are the acquisition fees. That's not the way to look at it, guys. But assuming that most people don't know how to do that, that's again where you look at it's good to invest in good areas path of progress in case the syndicator falls down that at least the it was in a good area but then again it's mostly just investing with via proxy that you have people that you trust that are pure passive investors that you they can vouch that they invest for, with somebody and you might as well try it out yourself it's like the whole like you're at an intersection this car is making a left turn i don't look i just make my right turn if they're going right they get T-boned, well, at least I won't get the brunt of it, but I'm assuming that they're checking. So if I have a, built a relationship with another pure passive investor, not just I had one beer with him or I talked to him on the phone for 10, 20 minutes, but you build rapport over time, you have a reciprocal relationship, and now you share what deals you're going into, they're going into, what deals aren't working, what deal is, and you can build that type of relationship where if they're going and making that left turn, you're going to follow them in a way. Um, that takes a long time to develop. I never had that when I first started, but that's really the gold standard. Just like how I asked you going back to, oh, how did you find that guy in Minnesota, right? The agent. Right. Like, I was listening for this. I was like, you said, I, I knew this guy for a couple of years, right? Like you had built up that relationship and rapport and you guys, you knew this wasn't just a one guy who dropped into the local Rio or, or put a few posts in bigger pockets or something random like that. This guy was there. Maybe you probably checked for social proof on other people who've worked with him in the past. You did your due diligence, not like a bonehead. And most okay. people do this the really wrong way. And I think that's shown why you're able to navigate this successfully. And other part is being accountable to have accountability plan, accountability partners. But most people are not able to do that. Most people are unable to build relationships with people. The next generation, the Gen Z or whatever, they're going to be horrible, right? At this stuff. Absolutely horrible. I tell you, I'm losing the battle. I do not see any interest on my daughters. I keep on trying to put them to just menial tasks so that at least they'll understand that it's not, I don't want them to grow up to be a trust fund babies, but they are pretty much growing up to be like that. 
Yeah, that's something I, I'm trying to build on the curriculum. I don't have kids, but I know on the upcoming mastermind, I ask people, do they have older kids, younger kids? They don't have kids. And then we're going to split up people in different breakout rooms based on that topic and give them speaking sheets so you can speak to people that have younger kids like yourself. But my only take on that from my perspective is if you're giving a menial task that sucks, why would I want to do a menial task? Give me, show me the rewards, right? Just like the profit first thing. Show me, yeah. the, give me my 5%, even if it's super small. I want some, give me some skin in the game. Just like your spouse, no skin in the game. You take some arbitrary random $8,400 distribution. That means nothing to them. So you got to figure out a way to get skin in the game or, but I don't know what works. Some people swear by the game cash flow for kids. That might be a good one. And then bribe them to play. Whoever wins gets 10 bucks. I don't know. Um, yeah. Any last things or you think you're good for now? I'm great for now. Uh, the other things that I'm going to follow up on the website, I think you have talked about this a little bit, that as you have moved into syndications and how you have learned how to operationalize, designate, how does the asset management work? But those are a lot deeper conversations that I just need to read, read up on the materials that you have on your website. I'm yeah. So by the time this, this goes out, I'm sure we'll have the syndication e-course done. Okay. Let me check that out. Simplepassivecashflow.com slash courses. It's done. And it's okay. pretty good. But yeah, thanks for doing this. And people want to, you guys want to volunteer and put yourself out there. Uh, Ahmed was like, yeah, transparency, put yourself out there. Let me know and we can do one of these for you. But hopefully it was helpful for everybody. And thanks, Ahmed, for volunteering. You're more than welcome. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.